Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Weinkoop, and uh, I'm the director of culinary instruction uh, here at Ruby. And I'm also one of your instructors in the courses. And uh, specifically, I'd like to welcome you to my office hours today. All right. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in. And I'd like to uh, address the first question from Mackenzie, uh, who writes, I am struggling getting my knife cuts even. I am in a wheelchair and struggle seeing over the knife. Any suggestions? Aha. Uh -huh. So um, we've got a, a general question, uh, one that I hear with some frequency, uh, you know, regarding knife cuts, but also a more specific context here. Uh, one of being in a, in a particular uh, position relative to the cutting board and the knife and the product being cut. Okay. Uh, let me uh, start out by talking about knife cuts uh, more generally. And uh, on one hand, we have our assignments uh, that focus on knife skill development. And then there's uh, knife cuts more generally in your day-to-day -day cooking. Okay. So regarding the assignments, uh, as uh, on one hand, it may be as, as simple as knife cutting, knife cuts, uh, may sound, these assignments are, in my opinion, the most challenging because they're the most technical assignments in our courses. Okay. And, there, and what I mean is that uh, there is a specific benchmark that we use, uh, and it's the uh, cut dimensions, right, for each of the cuts that we introduce. Uh, so, for example, a small dice is a one quarter inch cube. Uh, it's not a little bit less and it's not a little bit more. Uh, and so if, if uh, what you present is a little bit off target, then it's subject to a point deduction. All right. And then also uh, we will take a look at uh, the consistency of your cuts. And uh, so it, we're looking for consistency uh, ac across the sampling, you know, that, that handful uh, approximately of product that you submit. And uh, again, here comes the, the technicality, right? Uh, if there is some inconsistency throughout your cuts, then uh, it's subject to a point detection. Okay, so that's what I mean when I say that these assignments are the most difficult uh, in our courses, because once you get into uh, the uh, the cooking courses or, or cooking assignments, rather, uh, there's, you know, much more leeway in terms of hitting the target uh, for a particular learning outcome. All right. Uh, so just keep that in mind for all of you that are looking at the knife cut assignments. Okay. It's uh, difficult uh, to receive 100%. Okay. Very, very difficult. But uh, understand that uh, knife cuts, uh, that the skill development is, is an ongoing process. And of course, I encourage you to focus on that process to the extent that you want to or that you need to. Okay, which gets me into the second part of my lead in, which is your day to day cooking and uh, knife cuts. Okay, um, some of you right, uh, you know, may choose to focus on some very refined, uh, consistent knife cuts, uh, call them, you know, uh, visually appealing, particularly visually appealing. 
uh, around special occasions or special dishes that you might make. And uh, it's part of the presentation of the food, along with a garnish and, and uh, you know, the other colors that you might present through your ingredient selection. The consistency and the shape, the accuracy of knife cuts uh, also goes a long way to creating uh, a sharp looking, uh, no pun intended, I guess, uh, uh, but a visually uh, appealing dish. Okay. Now, we don't usually worry about that on a day-to-day uh, -day basis, right? We're, we all have busy lives and uh, we want to get uh, food prepped uh, reasonably quickly. And so, you know, we're after some generally consistent cuts so that the food will cook evenly, but we're probably not worried about the, the precision and that, that uh, exact eye appeal uh, that we might be interested in uh, on a special occasion day. Okay, so you get to choose uh, at the end of the day just how precise you want to be. Okay, uh, and uh, so for the assignment itself, um, and going back to Mackenzie's question, um, you know, the, the challenge of, of being at a certain height uh, in that, uh, that angle of sight uh, that we have on the product and the cutting board and the knife, okay? So uh, if it's uh, difficult or not possible to get over the knife to really see the alignment of, that, of the knife, okay, relative to, to the cutting board um, and relative to the food product, then it's gonna be a matter of, of uh, practicing, okay? You're gonna, you're gonna make a cut, uh, you know, feeling and knowing where your hand is and where the knife is, and then look at the results and then make an adjustment. You're going to, you know, you're this way or you're this way or you're right on. And so just keep on practicing uh, until you can make the best cuts that you can uh, and the best cuts that you reasonably want to maintain on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. Um, so I, I appreciate uh, the challenge that you present. Uh, for me to think about here, and I uh, hope that uh, you will take that approach, uh, one of practice, and uh, also, you know, uh, just understanding that uh, the goal is overall consistency um, on a day-to-day -day basis. But of course, when it comes to the assessment, uh, we're going to push you to aim high, okay? Understanding that as you add speed to your food prep and your knife cuts that we lose accuracy, right? That's the balance uh, in the kitchen, okay? So for your assignments, do the best that you can, practice as needed before you submit those assignments. Thank you. All right, next up, we've got a question from Marina. Uh, hello, and how do you do? Good to see you again. Uh, can you please break down the process of recipe development. Aha, uh -huh. so we've got a, a potentially big question here, right, in, in this um, uh, process of recipe development. And on, on one hand, there's a, a bit of a process uh, that one could, um, you know, write down and follow or at least think about. Um, I'll, I'll start off by saying that there are certainly multiple approaches to uh, recipe development. Um, the, the, the first step uh, is really the acquisition of, of knowledge and experience, okay, first and foremost. So you want to expose yourself to a lot of cooking and a lot of repetitive tasks 
so that you can best understand how fundamentally temperature and time affect the outcome of a process. Okay, so a little higher temperature, a little lower temperature, a little shorter or longer time on the uh, on the simmer, the braise, the, the grill, etc. And you start to understand the nuances, right, of what's going on and how best to control for that. And then uh, along with that comes uh, a knowledge of how ingredients interact uh, along with uh, that uh, balance of taste, right? Those those basic tastes, along with those thousands of flavors, uh, we have texture to think about in the different ingredients, uh, whether they're served in a raw state or a, a cooked state or something in between. Okay, the texture, of course, uh, is going to differ, and we have some control over that. Uh, and then there's the visual uh, presentation or visual appeal of that individual component that goes on the plate as it contributes to uh, the entirety, okay, of the preparation. And so visual appeal could be the application of caramelization, okay, through a dry heat cooking method, right, or the absence of that uh, through selecting a moist heat cooking method, okay. And, and so uh, there's flavor implications, uh, but we have a choice uh, in that department, okay. Um, now, uh, again, critical engagement right throughout the cooking process and throughout uh, a period of time is really what uh, is going to get you there. Okay. So, you know, for example, as, as I sit around and think about um, uh, altering a recipe that I see uh, or, you know, just wondering if I can sort of create a new version of something um, that I might see in, in, in a, a photographic form, you know, I think about swapping in and out ingredients, and I have a, a reasonably good idea of what those combinations will taste like, just based upon my experience. Uh, of course, I need to try it out, ultimately, to understand the nuances and to see what I want to alter in terms of ratios or, or, or quantities otherwise, okay? But that's uh, the benefit of experience, okay, is to have that sort of confidence and control over the process from the very first step. Okay. Um, now, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, gaining that experience, I, you know, my uh, path is always to look at global cuisine. Uh, there, that's where the, the diversity lies, right? It's, it's, it's looking at the world of flavor, literally, and understanding within each cultural context, how particular ingredients and therefore tastes and flavors function. Okay, and function with something else. Um, and so that's uh, the number one goal, right, is to create that foundation, that starting place uh, that allows this process to become much easier. Okay. Um, now, I mentioned uh, cooking method or, or choice of cooking method. And I think that's important, right, because the results can uh, uh, vary quite a bit. Uh, you know, whether it's a moist heat method or a dry heat method. And for example, if it's a dry heat method, do we choose saute or do, do we choose uh, to grill? Uh, or maybe it's the efficiency of volume preparation in an oven through the roasting method that we might choose. Okay, so there's there should be a reason why you choose each component and each step along this path of recipe development. Okay. 
you know, also uh, consider the quantity of the food uh, that may be prepared. Okay. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, is it some, is it volume cooking in some form? Maybe it's catering at some level, uh, or is it a meal for four? Okay. And that will, uh, inform the equipment that you might choose, uh, which also might inform the cooking method that you might choose. Okay. Now keep in mind, this is an important one. Keep in mind the flavor development that you, that you get from dry heat cooking methods. I think that's a, uh, a strategy that um, uh, we need to be aware of uh, whenever we're cooking, okay? Um, because along with herbs and spices and uh, these, you know, uh, acidifying ingredients and other uh, choices uh, from our pantry, the cooking method also uh, can have a very uh, large impact on the flavor outcome, okay? Uh, then start to think about plating, right? What do you want this food to look like when it's presented? Um, I mean, is, is it a buffet, sort of a party, you know, catering, uh, large uh, volume format? Uh, or is it an individually plated uh, dish or meal, okay? And, uh, you know, think about the, uh, the components around plating, such as height development on the plate. In order to build that third dimension on a plate, uh, we need some uh, components that are stackable, right? That have uh, the stability within them uh, to hold up their own weight or the weight of something else that may be laid on top of that or leaned on that uh, component in order to build that height, okay? Uh, sometimes height can be built simply by adding a garnish, uh, you know, whether it's... Uh, uh, a savory twill or a, uh, a breadstick, or um, it could be a sprig of herb uh, if you want to go down that path. But uh, there are some other simpler ways um, where the the structure of your food is is perhaps less important. But nonetheless, think about that third dimension on the plate. Um, you know, think about what garnish you're going to use in terms of. Um, visual appeal, color contrast, and also texture contrast, okay? Uh, and then also think about service timing. So in other words, is this item that you're developing, this recipe that you wanna create, uh, will it be placed out at room temperature, for, for example, as an appetizer, and therefore uh, is able to just uh, sit around for a while, okay, without deteriorating in quality? Uh, or is this a dish that should be served hot and therefore immediately for full enjoyment, okay? Um, and, you know, with that comes flavor intensity, aroma intensity, all right? So uh, hot foods, right? This is a, a spectrum that we can, uh, of temperature that we can imagine, okay? Where uh, hot items uh, have the most molecular activity, uh, therefore they have the potential to be most aromatic and have that first um, uh, sort of hit on the on the olfactory senses uh, around flavor, okay, flavor perception. And uh, as an item uh, drops in temperature to room temperature and finally to uh, a chilled temperature, then flavor intensity drops. We also need to think about then how we can accentuate seasoning. Right, maybe it's the, it, we need to increase acidity or increase salt, for example, 
in order to uh, maintain pallet interest as the service temperature drops on that particular item. Okay, so all, uh, you know, these are all important uh, pieces, right, of that recipe development pie, right, so to speak. Okay. Um, and then, uh, so, you know, as you touch upon these different areas uh, that I just mentioned, uh, of course, there is a testing process, an adjustment process with each of these areas. All right, so uh, this is where recipe, um, uh, you know, the, the, the actual testing process comes into play where you might alter quantities or, you know, particular ratios. Uh, and keeping in mind that as you change the ingredient variety, that that might affect other relationships within, within that dish, okay? And so as seasons change and the quality of food change changes, uh, or as the place of origin of the food changes, right, that you select, um, you'll need to do some further testing, okay? Uh, but this is that general process that I follow uh, when developing a recipe, okay? And, and to bring this full circle, let me summarize that uh, for me, developing a recipe uh, is usually uh, taking a, 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 an existing recipe or an idea. It could be in written form. Or it could just be a photograph that I see and then uh, altering that in some way to better suit uh, my particular situation or my particular occasion, right? Or my particular client, right? My particular family's flavor preferences, okay? Um, and then, uh, you know, secondarily, it would be the creation of something new, okay? Which is, um, uh, you know, certainly possible, but it takes a little bit more time, I think. Uh, so, Marina, I hope that uh, gets you off and running, uh, you know, in terms of uh, tinkering and developing recipes. Thank you. All right, uh, next up, uh, we've got a question from Trina. Uh, do you have gluten-free options for students uh, that can't do gluten in your recipe assignments? Um, yes, you know, generally speaking, uh, I think uh, uh, our assignments, and certainly our, our mo most, most of our, our uh, lessons and, and the practices uh, assignments or practice recipes uh, have a gluten-free option. Uh, if you come across a section uh, where you don't see that, then reach out to us and we're happy to work with you um, in, you know, identifying something that, uh, you know, would be suitable for you. Okay. We have uh, students that come through every day uh, that have, you know, some sort of a change uh, that is necessary, right? Whether it's a, a religious proscription, whether it's a, a dietary requirement uh, or just a personal preference. Um, so, you know, we do uh, these sort of uh, alterations quite regularly, okay? But uh, usually they become a case-by-case, -case, uh, sort of an individually tailored answer. So uh, if you have any questions along the way, please reach out uh, at support at ruby.com. And, uh, you know, we can have a dialogue in that format. Thank you. All right, next up is a question about peeling garlic. Uh, what's your favorite method to pe peel garlic? Um, uh, on some days, my favorite method is to purchase uh, already peeled garlic. But um, if I've got to peel the garlic myself, um, you know, I suppose it depends um, on how I'm going to use that garlic. You know, if, the, if I'm going to cut it 
you know, chop it, mince it, uh, break it down with a knife in some fashion, or otherwise the shape of the clove is not important, then I'll, you know, I'll probably just give it a whack, uh, maybe with the edge of the knife or, you know, maybe just press it with my palm of my hand on the cutting board uh, in order to uh, break the skin, uh, which makes it, uh, in most cases, pretty easy to peel, okay? And, uh, uh, you know, if the shape of the clove must remain intact, right, for visual presentation, then I'll take the time, uh, often with a paring knife, to, um, you know, cut off that, uh, I guess, what would be the stem end, that end that's attached to the bulb, and then more carefully peel back the layers of skin. And uh, sometimes I'm just, uh, I'm going to sit down at, at the table and do a whole bunch of that um, uh, and uh, enjoy the process. Okay, so those are a couple of things that I do. All right, thank you. All right, uh, next is uh, a question. Hello, Grace. Uh, what's the right way to freeze fruits, uh, for example, blueberries and cooked beans and lentils? Aha. Uh -huh. So, um, you know, potentially uh, and probably there's more than one right way to do this. But uh, what comes to mind for me is to, um, let's see, in the case of berries, uh, blueberries and other berries as well, uh, is to set them out in a single layer on a sheet pan uh, and then stick that whole thing in the freezer so, so that the berries freeze individually. Okay, so that we have individually frozen berries. And then I will package those into a, a container, usually a, a, some sort of a resealable bag, and then that resides in the freezer. Okay, now in terms of legumes of uh, various sorts, um, for me, they're usually going into uh, a container with a tight-fitting lid, uh, in a, a, a volume, right, or a, a unit size that is convenient to my cooking pattern here at home, right, or in the case of a restaurant, you know, in that setting, okay? So, you know, here at home, I like to use what we call in the U.S. deli containers, and deli containers are uh, plastic cylindrical containers with a, a, a kind of a snap uh, tight fitting lid. And it's what you might see at a deli, right? Uh, that serves food to go. And you can uh, certainly use leftover containers uh, from the store if you have those, uh, or uh, you can purchase these. And, uh, you know, in my uh, neighborhood here, I'm lucky enough to have a restaurant supply store nearby, which is also open to the public. And they sell these deli containers in different sizes. I see them in a one cup, right, an eight fluid ounce size, a pint, right, or a 16 fluid ounce size, uh, and a quart, right, a 32 fluid ounce size. And each of those has uh, the same size lid, right, which is nice. And uh, so, you know, I will use, uh, you know, any of those three sizes, depending on what it is that I'm placing into the freezer. Okay, and those containers are reusable as well. All right, I hope that's helpful. Thank you. 
All right. Uh, next question. What's the best way to make delicious sauces for vegetables without using a roux? Okay. So the best way. Um, well, I'll talk about, uh, you know, at least one or two ideas that come to mind. I'm sure there are probably some others out there. Um, you know, I uh, often go toward um, Mexico, right, or Mexican-inspired um, sauces. Sometimes it's uh, India, okay, uh, which uses a lot of um, what are called gravies, uh, which are another word for sauces, okay, in, in various preparations. Um, and so I think salsa, okay, and uh, you can produce fresh salsa and you can vary the size of the cut uh, to accompany uh, different vegetable dishes, depending on how you want the dish to look and how you want the salsa to uh, adhere to the food or um, sit obediently on a fork or spoon as you're eating that food item, okay? Uh, there are also, um, you know, blended, uh, many, many blended salsas, uh, which definitely cling and, and nappe uh, on the food and are very nice choices to uh, finish uh, vegetable preparations of any sort, okay? Uh, so uh, salsas could be uh, raw, okay, in their fresh state, you know, often uh, tomato and onion-based. Um, salsas can also be uh, um, uh, cooked uh, to some degree or another. And, uh, you know, this is where we might see uh, dried chilies uh, that are used. Uh, and uh, um, they are um, quickly grilled or griddled to bring out some flavor and then soaked in hot water and then blended with other ingredients. Uh, then we also have the addition of nuts. Uh, sometimes they are nut-based sauces, but certainly the addition of nuts um, to a sauce and then blended uh, in a, uh, a blender of some sort. Uh, I use a, a high-speed blender and, and always recommend those where possible. And then that creates a, a very different experience uh, in terms of the mouthfeel and the way that the sauce clings to the food item. And um, so I recommend that you, you give that a try, okay? And all of those, of course, are going to be free of a roux. All right, thank you. All right, uh, let's see, next question. What's the easiest sauce to make uh, to make veggies more tasty? Um, so very similar to uh, the one that I just addressed, um, but I will also add that, uh, you know, you can use a vinaigrette uh, or any kind of a salad dressing. Uh, that uh, you might enjoy with uh, any other vegetable preparation outside of a, a more traditional leaf lettuce salad, okay? I think that's a great place to start. And of course, something like a vinaigrette is very quick to prepare and the flavor profile can be nudged in different directions very easily according to your needs. And um, so you've got uh, uh, great flexibility, okay? And uh, um, so, you know, couple that idea with, with what we just talked about. And I think you've got a nice selection of sauces for various vegetable preparations. All right. Thank you. And uh, next up, uh, 
The question from Debbie uh, reads, uh, will we be learning how to flavor our cooking with different types of spices and herbs? And uh, the quick answer is yes. In, in our courses, uh, we do introduce uh, herbs and spices, and we have a uh, selection of practice recipes uh, for you to, to start that process, okay, of, of learning that is. And I will add to that that um, the rest of it is up to you. Um, you know, to some extent or another, right? Uh, there's certainly references out there, many references that I always encourage uh, cooks to, to use, such as the Flavor Bible. Uh, there's also the Vegetarian Flavor Bible um, as, a, as a place to start, but also many other options, both online and in print, okay, depending on your preference. And, um, you know, keep in mind that, you know, here at Ruby, our goal is uh, for you to focus on um, transforming yourself into a cook, okay? And so we focus on methods and techniques, all right, in terms of you know, uh, food handling, application of heat, control of time. Uh, and then along with this process uh, of practicing across a period of time uh, is the acquisition of knowledge and skill. Okay, it's, it comes through your experience. And uh, so when we talk about herbs and spices, uh, as you look at uh, perhaps some sample, you know, practice recipes uh, from global cuisine to understand how flavors come together, then uh, strive to push the book aside and to practice on your own. Okay, so, you know, your uh, ingredient ratios that uh, come together to form some sort of a spice blend don't necessarily have to be uh, perfect, so to speak, okay? Um, it, they don't have to match exactly a recipe, all right? Uh, and let me give you some larger context, okay? Any sort of a spice blend recipe, for example, uh, that we see on the Ruby website or in a book or in, in any other source, um, is simply an example, right, of a spice blend from that region of the world. So in other words, if you were to go to that region of the world, you might find somebody that makes it just like you see in print, okay? But if you were to knock on that person's neighbor, that neighbor's, uh, person's neighbor's door and uh, ask them how they make that uh, spice blend, there's a good chance they do it a little bit differently, okay? And uh, so, you know, with that understanding, I want to give you the, the power, right, the, the, uh, the encouragement uh, to make changes yourself, uh, to alter ratios and flavor balance to suit your palate, and also to tinker, right, to experiment and to have fun in the kitchen. Uh, this is all part of the learning process. Uh, when you do make these changes, go small uh, so that you don't end up uh, inadvertently creating something that is inedible uh, and, uh, you know, having to uh, sort of uh, um, maybe throw that away or otherwise waste that opportunity, uh, so to speak, okay? And uh, understand this is a process. Have patience with yourself and enjoy the journey, all right? Thank you. 
All right. We've got another question here. Uh, this one uh, reads, as a recent vegan, as well as my household, now how can I uh, prepare for fall holidays coming up in ways that promote good food celebration and memories? Aha. Uh -huh. uh, Teresa, this sounds like um, your goal is to make a nice meal. All right. And, um, uh, you know, just as you have done in the past, okay, around holiday time, uh, you know, put your, your love and your effort uh, into your cooking. And uh, you're going to create meals uh, that are enjoyable. Okay, and that are memorable. Certainly, they're going to be uh, memorable. Uh, uh, you know, this first time out, right? Uh, as you and your family have uh, made a change uh, to focus more on uh, eating plants, or maybe eating plants exclusively, since you're using the V word. Okay, um, but uh, you know, as I mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago in the, with the previous question, focus on learning to cook, focus on skill development and knowledge acquisition, okay, so that, uh, you know, you can uh, develop the confidence, number one, to follow uh, a practice recipe, but more importantly, to step away from that recipe and to create dishes or to alter recipes on your own, uh, you know, knowing that you're going to have results that you enjoy. Um, I mean, otherwise, you know, the basic process of cooking in order to make good food and good memories is going to be the same as it always has been, uh, whether your focus is on vegetables exclusively or not. Okay. Um, keep in mind also that uh, flavor uh, is super important. That's what we're talking about, right? And to that end, start incorporating more fresh herbs and spices. And uh, you're going to find a, a big boost, I think, in the aromatic quality and therefore the enjoyment right, of that dish. All right. Um, yeah, bring other members into the kitchen. Uh, involve the whole family uh, in this new transition of yours. Uh, and enjoy the process of creating those memories together. And I think that goes a long way also uh, in creating harmony uh, and buy-in and appreciation, right, for the effort that went into the preparation of that meal. All right. Have fun. Thank you. All right. We've got a question from Audi. Uh, what are your thoughts about using the new wave oven in plant Based cooking. Um, so the new wave oven, um, I have not used directly, um, but I am generally familiar with it uh, just from, uh, you know, from reading about it, from seeing photographs. And I think for cooking in general, uh, and this would certainly include plant-based cooking, you know, the, the new wave uh, oven uh, can certainly be a, a, a good appliance, right, to use. There's nothing uh, inherently wrong with it. Um, it's just a matter of getting used to it. And, uh, you know, to some extent, it's going to uh, require you to shift your, your cooking 
style or cooking patterns to fit that appliance. Okay. And I would say the same thing about, uh, you know, any other popular appliance right now, such as the electric pressure cookers uh, that are on the market, uh, as well as the air fryers uh, that are on the market. Uh, those all function very nicely uh, in the kitchen. Uh, it's just a matter of um, sort of tailoring the things that you make to fit into those often smaller appliances. And, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, sort of tailoring your style of cooking to match the outcomes that these appliances produce. Okay. Um, but I think the, the new wave oven uh, can be, uh, you know, certainly a, a good appliance to use. Okay. Uh, as always, okay, with these appliances generally and brands specifically, you know, I encourage consumers to look at reviews, product reviews online, and uh, try to get an idea of how other people have experienced this particular appliance. Okay. Um, just as a hint, uh, you know, my approach is uh, to just skip over all of the five-star ratings, even the four-star ratings, uh, because good news is good news, right? And, and we're not going to disagree about that. Uh, the more interesting information is in the one-star and two-star ratings. I want to know what the gripes are, what the challenges are, what the shortcomings are. Uh, of these appliances and, and how they might relate to my situation or my personal um, preferences uh, around certain challenges, right? So a, a challenge to one person may not be a challenge to me, right? And vice versa. Um, but I want to read about all of that, all of the bad news, so to speak, uh, in order to best understand if I can handle this product or not. And so I encourage you to read product reviews also. Thank you. All right, uh, the next question from Patricia. Uh, when I prepared the pho stock recipe, I left the orange slices um, uh, to cook too long and the citrus flavor turned the stock rather bitter. Uh, is there a particular spice you would recommend next time to counter this bitterness to salvage the stock? Uh, Patricia, I've been there. Um, I... Uh, Remember, my first batch of this pho stock was pretty bad uh, in terms of, of the, the imbalance, the bitterness. And I tinkered with it. And um, there's really nothing that I found that would, uh, you know, effectively mask or, or um, I should say balance, right, that bitterness. Um, I had left the citrus in for a pretty long time and it got uh, really bitter and I just wasn't able uh, to, to get rid of that. Um, what I was able to use was uh, uh, that stock in uh, very small um, units, uh, very small quantities, um, you know, to, to, uh, as, a, as a, a seasoning or a, a taste balancer, right? Adding in complexity and a touch of bitterness uh, to soups and stews and also, um, uh, there's a lot more, uh, you know, other ingredients that you would you can mix with a small quantity of the stock if you wanted to to really utilize what you would produce rather than than throw it away. But uh, no, um, I have not come across a, a, a spice um, that will do that will balance that strong bitterness at least to my satisfaction. Okay, there's going to be strong bitterness that remains. 
All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, next up, uh, let's see from Leslie. Um, I want to make sensational vegetable sides of restaurant quality to serve my family. I'm not a good cook and suck at timing and flavorings. Therefore, need to follow recipes. Any hints or recommendations of books I can read to improve this, please? Okay. Uh, Leslie, um, I see a, 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 a wonderful scene here from about 10,000 meters, okay? And um, I see this starting point um, where you uh, describe yourself, right, as not being a good cook. Uh, and then I see this end point, right, of you serving sensational vegetable sides, okay, of restaurant quality. And in between here, I see this beautiful process of learning, of practicing, of developing your skills, of acquiring a lot of knowledge around uh, cooking methods and uh, ingredients and uh, how different dishes come together, okay? And uh, this, this process can take some time. Uh, it just uh, it depends on uh, your frequency of cooking, uh, the volume of cooking, you know, these sort of factors, as well as, you know, your own personal learning curve, okay? Um, but uh, I want you to enjoy that process, and I want you to focus on, um, you know, I would recommend uh, a Ruby course, right, if you're not already in, enrolled. I think we do a great job uh, in focusing on uh, handling, right, of ingredients through the cooking methods and, and ancillary techniques that form the foundation of confidence, right, as well as the skills and the knowledge that will allow you to start cooking better and better, right, as you continue uh, down your path, uh, acquiring experience along the way, okay? So uh, that's my hint. Um, you know, in terms of uh, books, you know, you can look around at books. I don't have any to recommend just offhand. Um, you know, and you can certainly look at a book and, and find a recipe, but you're going to be bound to the recipe. And when you want to make something else, you got to look for another recipe and then you'll be bound to that recipe. OK, but even within recipes, you need to tinker and make adjustments based upon your own equipment, the specific ingredients that you choose, uh, the way that you cut something, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, so you know, recipes are not uh, foolproof uh, uh, either, uh, or, or adjustment-proof, maybe I should say, okay? And so the best long-term solution, right, to connect points A and B as, as I see them for you uh, is to take the long road and to be patient with yourself and the process and to enjoy, and to enjoy those uh, many experiences along the way. Thank you. All right, another question from Grace. Uh, in unit six, task 116, uh, so this sounds like forks over knives, uh, there were lessons on roasting nuts. Uh, would you give recommendation on roasting duration time for different kinds of nuts? No, uh, you know, I don't have specific uh, uh, times to give uh, for different nuts, uh, but I will give you a hint, okay? Um, this is all about the empowerment of the cook, right? And, and I want to encourage you to use all of your senses uh, and to stay engaged with the food throughout the process. And you'll turn out some um, uh, properly handled 
uh, nuts and seeds right from the oven. Okay. Now set your oven to, you know, um, at least in, in Fahrenheit, about 300 degrees. It could be a touch less. It could be a touch more. And then uh, place the nuts or seeds uh, uh, just one type in a container. Don't mix them because they come in different sizes. Okay. So uh, get one type in a, on a container, a flat container, like a sheet pan. Uh, it could be a, a pie tin, uh, but something with shallow sides, very low sides, because this lets the air circulate over the product nice and evenly. Okay. If you put uh, the nuts uh, in a container with high sides, the natural con uh, you know, air circulation or convection in the oven will come around. It'll, it'll hit the side of the pan and come up and then over the top and then back down. And it uh, just takes longer uh, to, to toast things because there's less contact with the warm air. Okay, so use something with, a, with shallow edges, all right? And then put that into the oven, and then you're going to check with your nose. You're going to wait for aroma. Uh, don't wait to see color. Okay, because very often, um, if we wait to see color uh, in an oven, which is often a little bit darker or has lighting that's a little bit less desirable, okay, uh, then the nuts will overcook, they'll overbrown. All right, uh, you know, the uh, nuts and seeds, um, uh, they uh, will caramelize uh, and, and, and otherwise toast pretty quickly, okay? So you also can't walk away and take a shower or, or change the oil in your car or something like that. You got to stay close and wait for the aroma, okay? Um, take the product out, okay? And uh, you're good to go. Now, let the nuts or seeds cool down to room temperature and then taste them. That's where you're going to have uh, the true essence of the texture as well as the resulting flavor. Okay. Now, if you find that the product is still a touch under toasted for your preference, then you know, aha, uh, I need to wait for a little bit more aroma, right, coming from the oven. All right. So now there's a little bit longer time in the oven, okay, in order to get to that ideal state of toasting. Okay. On the other hand, if you over toast, you're going to draw bitterness uh, from those seeds and from those nuts. And uh, that bitterness will carry through uh, in the dish that you prepare. And so we want to avoid bitterness. And uh, therefore, we're using a relatively, um, let's, uh, well, I'll say a moderate temperature, right? 300 ish Fahrenheit. Um, and we're going to stay close to it. Okay. In terms of checking for aroma and then pulling the product out of the oven uh, to, to check, okay? Now, you notice that I recommend an oven and not the stovetop in a pan, okay? If you're using a pan on the stovetop, then uh, this is the pan, okay? Your nuts go in the pan, and you're getting a single edge or, or side of high heat. And so the nut, right, as it makes contact, is going to get a hot spot, it's going to get uh, an, an unevenly toasted and usually burnt spot and maybe multiple burn spots 
before the interior of the nut is nicely toasted. Okay, so I prefer and always recommend the nice, gentle, enveloping heat of an oven. All right, thank you. All right, we've got uh, Lewis or Louie uh, with another question. Uh, let's see. For, any, for anyone in the plant-based course, uh, should we get a two-sided sharpening stone that has a 400 grit side on one side and a 1,000 grit side on the other side? Uh, you know, I think that's a um, that's a bigger discussion. Okay, and um, so let's let's start. All right, um, using a sharpening uh, a stone, a wet stone. You know, usually two or three. Uh, well, usually two, sometimes three, uh, is not for everyone. Okay, because um, there is um, oftentimes a long um, learning curve. Uh, in order to get to a point of, of confidence and real proficiency uh, so that we're really uh, handling the knife properly, putting a, a clean edge, one that's, that's uh, at, a, at a good angle for what we're trying to do uh, so that it lasts reasonably long. Um, now, in the meantime, you can booger up a lot of blades, okay, because whetstones will take metal off pretty quickly, especially uh, when you get down into that 400 grit category, okay? So a person uh, is needs to be the type of personality that wants to fiddle with knives, okay? Um, on the other hand, there are other tools, whether manual or electric, that will get you there more consistently and quicker, okay, in terms of putting a, a fresh edge on your blade. Uh, now for the results, okay? Now with practice, um, proper practice, a whetstone gives you more control and therefore the potential for better results when compared to these other uh, tools. Um, you know, these ceramic discs sort of pull through tools or an electric sharpener, okay? So there's a trade-off. Um, uh, either way. So you get to figure out which path you want to take. All right. Now, in terms of the grit, you know, I think a, a 400 and a, and a, a thousand, you know, having those two stones uh, is certainly one place to start. Um, you know, as I mentioned, 400 grit will take off a lot of metal. Um, and I uh, would, you know, uh, also uh, consider uh, uh pushing you up the, the grit scale, okay? So where your, your coarse stone might be, you know, maybe in the neighborhood of uh, 800 grit um, or something uh, certainly just a little bit higher than 400, you know, to start off. It could be, let's, let's say 800. And uh, your next jump up would be something around uh, 2,500 or so. Uh, 3,000, I think, would be fine. If it were 2,000, that's probably fine as well, but somewhere right in there. Um, and uh, those two stones would uh, be adequate, okay, uh, for most applications. If you want to really drill deep uh, and, and you uh, start to get very nuanced about uh, how you handle your knives, uh, then you might uh, also add a third stone um, that is uh, maybe, you know, uh, 5,000 grit, or it could be even higher than that. Some folks use a 6,000 or an 8,000 uh, grit that really puts a polish on that 
cutting edge as the finishing step. And uh, that will uh, not only um, uh, allow the knife to, to, to be sharper, but also it'll give your knife the ability to hold the cutting edge a little bit longer. Okay, now that's gonna be based upon your proper honing, right, on a steel on a daily basis, uh, as well as storing your knife in a way so that it doesn't bang around with other things. Um, you know, other knives, for example, in a drawer. Okay, um, so, you know, hopefully this additional information uh, is helpful to you, uh, but certainly there's, uh, you know, a lot to think about when considering whetstones, okay? But uh, they can be fun and rewarding, but understand um, the learning curve. All right, thank you. Hey, Adair, aloha, and uh, welcome. It's been a while. Hope you've been well. I just want to say thank you. In the middle of an anti-inflammatory eating journey and in the elimination phase, Having graduated from the Whole Food Plant-Based Chef and Culinary Rx courses uh, is making it fun and delicious. So grateful for Ruby and you. Uh, Adair, thank you uh, very much for visiting today. Uh, I know we've had many interactions in the past uh, when you were inter uh, enrolled as a student. And uh, I have thought about you uh, off and on. And uh, it's good, uh, good to see you today and to know that you're doing well. Thanks. All right, next up, uh, any gluten-free substitutes for liquid smoke? Um, well, uh, I think in terms of imparting smoke flavor, which I'm, I'm guessing is the goal, right? Um, uh, there's always a, a grill slash smoker. Um, another option is a stove top smoker. Um, and you can purchase those. Um, uh, and uh, there's also, uh, you know, a stovetop smoker that you can make. Uh, and, you know, I make them by using, um, you know, what is eventually a disposable aluminum um, uh, hotel pan, you know, that I get from the restaurant supply store nearby here. And um, I'll crumple up four balls of foil put them in each corner and put a rack on top of that. And then I'll get a second, you know, disposable, you know, uh, reusable until I dispose it, a dispose of it, um, uh, hotel pan as a lid. Okay. And I can lay the food items uh, on the grate and then uh, I can smoke on that. Okay. That's a, another uh, kind of a homemade form of a, a stovetop smoker. Okay. Uh, another option is to get a piece of uh, uh, charcoal and to uh, you know start it uh, you know as you would for grilling, but then take that uh, usually single piece of charcoal and then put it into some sort of a metal container, put that into your pot of food and then put a lid on it, and you can let that sit for a few minutes and that will impart some smokiness to your food uh, without having to use liquid smoke. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, first time online class is for me uh, new, but I like Ruby class. Uh, um, how we are doing a sweet, dark liquid sauce. 
Well, um, let's see here. Sweet, dark liquid sauce. Um, I guess there are some different contexts that come to mind. Uh, you know, one idea is to make a, uh, a balsamic vinegar reduction. And, um, you know, that is, uh, you know, very simply uh, using a, usually a, a moderate quality uh, balsamic vinegar, and then slowly reducing that over gentle heat uh, until it thickens to the viscosity that you want, right, based upon how you'll use it, okay? And uh, balsamic vinegar, I mean, usually has um, pretty good sweetness to it, um, although some are more acidic than others, in which case you might want to add some sugar, uh, in which case I would recommend uh, a brown sugar of some sort, okay, to kind of uh, match the flavor profile uh, of the balsamic vinegar itself. Okay, so that's going to be one idea. Um, again, you know, it depends on, you know, what this sweet, dark liquid sauce is used for. Uh, you know, you can certainly uh, dissolve a, a brown sugar of some sort, right, whether it's um, a jaggery or pioncillo or, or something else uh, from around the world. Um, and then, you know, thicken that uh, until it uh, matches the, the type of service that you're thinking of, okay? Um, so anyway, again, you know, without understanding uh, more of the, the context, those are a couple of quick ideas, right, that come to mind. And uh, next up, uh, the question reads, I wanted to ask about supplements like spirulina or chlorella or maca powder and so on. Are those considered processed food? Thank you. Um, you know, the, I mean, the quick answer is they're, they're, they're processed to some extent, right, from their natural states, unless um, you live in the place of origin of, uh, of the maca um, or, the, or the spirulina, and you're able to, to harvest that and just eat it in its fresh state, okay? Um, any of the um, things that are going to be packaged or have certainly been processed uh, to, to some degree or another. Um, the, the next part of that, uh, of this question or this uh, scenario is that just simply, um, it's going to be up to you as to whether you want to use that or not, or how frequently and, and how much uh, you might want to use that. Okay. Um, uh, I hope that that helps. All right. Thank you. All right, uh, next up from Sylvia. Uh, what's the best cheese to use when making uh, pizza? Because I tried to use mozzarella cheese uh, and has failed to become sticky. And what is the uh, best yeast for making the dough? Um, well, uh, you know, if we're talking about traditional cheeses, then, you know, a, a milk-based mozzarella um, let's see. Well, it's really been successful for me. I guess it would depend on, um, if we're talking about a plant-based mozzarella, then plant-based cheeses can react, uh, in very different ways. Um, you know, in, uh, the heat of the oven. Okay. Um, let's see. Yeah. You know, you know, when it comes to plant-based cheeses, I don't have uh, specific suggestions that come to mind immediately for those 
cheeses that that uh, become sticky. All right, uh, you know this would require some searching uh, on the internet uh, or some testing a product myself. Um, you know, in terms of pinpointing a specific brand or a recipe that you might uh, that you might handle. Okay, um, sorry I don't have uh, more uh, solid information for you. Okay, when it comes to the cheese choice. Um, now regarding yeast, uh, you know you can uh, certainly just use what's called for in the recipe that you're using. Um, you know, for example, many of the recipes that I've used recently. Uh, call for an instant yeast, and uh, that we have some of that in, in the refrigerator, so that's what I use, but um, uh, just follow the directions on the recipe for the best results, uh, keeping in mind that if you want to switch to a different type of yeast, then you'll need to alter the amount of yeast used because um, you, you can't substitute different types of yeasts at the same amount, okay? Thank you. All right. Uh, next is uh, from Robert. Uh, best ways to get those gelatinous stocks more solid when cold. Uh, so they seem to be a little thin and would like to have a thicker cold jello-like finish. Okay, great. So we're talking about, uh, you know, animal-based, right? Uh, Bone-based stock. Um, you know, whether it's uh, seafood, right, or poultry, or uh, some four-legged animal, okay? And uh, the, the gelatin, okay, uh, comes from the breakdown of collagen. Collagen is a primary connective tissue uh, that we find both in the muscle uh, as well as around uh, the, the various structures that hold the bones together. Okay, so, uh, you know, number one uh, is the simmering time uh, in order to break down the collagen that then becomes the gelatin, okay, in the finished stock. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, the, the, more, the, the larger and more dense the bones, the longer time uh, is going to be required for simmering, Okay. And uh, the, the next factor will be the water to bone ratio. And clearly, if there's more water, it's going to be a thinner stock. And so we can um, either use a smaller amount of water to start with, or uh, you can uh, strain the finished product and then reduce it in order to drive off moisture. And that's going to concentrate the gelatin and result in a more jello-like uh, texture, okay, in that finished chilled stock, All right? So you've got two places, um, you know, where you can uh, sort of, you have control, right? And you can experiment. So one is gonna be simmering time and um, maybe it's three places, right? The second one being the water to bone ratio. And then the third is uh, the reduction process after you've strained the otherwise finished stock, okay? And, um, you know, keep in mind that if you want to um, play around in this step three that I mentioned, the reduction of the stock uh, sort of phase, uh, you have a lot of control there, okay? Where you can, um, 
you know, you can reduce stock by any percentage that you want. And, uh, you know, I, uh, in the past, used to reduce stock by probably by 80%, you know, so that the result is very, very small. It's very, very syrupy when hot. And when chilled, it sets up like a hockey puck, uh, certainly like an eraser, right, in terms of its stiffness. And, um, you know, that can be used, uh, you know, kind of as a form of, uh, let's say, bouillon, right, in terms of a, a concentrated flavor um, cube uh, and added to a soup or a, a stew, right, or a sauce uh, in order to finish that particular item, that the particular uh, preparation. Um, do keep in mind that as the product reduces, as the stock reduces, you want to transfer it to a smaller pan, okay, so that uh, it's it's deeper in the pan and then start that process over again. And do that a couple of times uh, as needed uh, because as the stock reduces, the chances of burning or, or you know, at least scorching uh, increases a lot. And uh, after you put in all that time and effort to end up scorching your reduced stock, it's a real bummer. And uh, yes, I've been there. Um, and so I always want to throw out that word of caution. Okay. Um, but also uh, taste it along the way because bitterness uh, or other off flavors can uh, result. And uh, so you can you know, taste it along the way and decide where you want to stop uh, in that process. It could be based upon the thickness or the viscosity, uh, or it could be mitigated by, you know, some some uh, flavors, uh, undesirable flavors that might emerge. Okay, so keep that in mind. Thank you. And uh, last up, uh, we've got a, another question from Grace. And this question reads, will eating more beans and lentils cause uric acid? And um, wow, so this is a question um, on one hand that is probably best suited to um, a diet uh, uh, analysis by a dietitian, um, you know, or otherwise, uh, you know, looking at lit literature from uh, the medical community, okay, uh, to uh, for you to learn more about purine, right, which uh, results in uric acid and how that might affect people, but specifically you, okay. Uh, and then I will also add that uh, a balanced diet, right, is going to be most desirable. And, um, you know, for most people, most of the time, if we maintain a balanced and, you know, a, a, a varied diet, right, many different ingredients, uh, then we avoid uh, a lot of these issues that are in the media around sort of, uh, you know, single element concerns like uric acid, okay? But of course, there is the, the, the individual health uh, that needs to be considered as well, okay? Um, and part of the, I think the bigger uh, question of handling legumes uh, also is uh, to cook them fully. Uh, there are some concerns that are associated with undercooked legumes. And um, uh, certainly fully cooked legumes uh, taste better, at least in my opinion, and they have a nicer, smoother texture. Uh, so, you know, be sure to cook them fully as well to mitigate some of these uh, concerns. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Grace. And uh, thank you uh, to all of you that 
joining me today for my office hours. I hope to see you again very soon. And in the meantime, uh, you know, enjoy cooking. All right. Bye-bye.